our study here through the book of Luke. In chapter 3, we started getting introduced into the public ministry of John the Baptist and also of Jesus here. And uh, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to try to pick off where we start off where we left off last week in verse 15 and try to get to about verse 22 here or so. Just kind of set the scene a little bit. We can tell from verse 23 of Luke chapter 3 that Jesus began his public ministry at about 30 years old. So we know that John the Baptist is just a little bit older than him. So John the Baptist is about 31 here just to kind of set the scene a little bit. And it's kind of neat to see what God's doing here. Now, we talked about John the Baptist a lot last week. So just to be repetitive here for a little bit to bring up some of those points again. We talked about how God kept John in the wilderness for many years, preparing him for this ministry. John had an amazing public ministry. The first mega church, if you will. Throngs of people coming to him that wanted to be around him. So much so, as we joked last week, verse 15, they wondered whether he was the Messiah or not. Now, John was prepared in the wilderness to be humble, to accept this type of ministry, and to be strong in this ministry because he had a tough ministry of teaching, of proclaiming truth that was sometimes an unpopular truth. So God had prepared John for this ministry. His thing was twofold, was to, one, prepare people to meet Jesus, and then to preach. So it was a preparation ministry, and it was a preaching ministry. Preparation, preparing people to meet Christ, preaching, repentance, and judgment. And that's where we're at here right now. So with that being said, let's see what he was actually saying. Verse 15, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So there we have his ministry of what he's doing here. Now, as we've said before, John was an amazing man, so much so that Jesus said there had not been a man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. What a compliment. And if you look what he did here, it all starts out with what? This idea of being humble, verse 16. I indeed baptize you with water. But look and jump ahead if you would. It says, but there is one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. The lowest of the low slave jobs back during Bible times was to clean, wash people's feet. So what John is saying is, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest person to unstrap the sandal of the Messiah. Now that is a humbleness. And that humbleness is so vital. Because if there is a pride in your life, God, God can't use that. It's amazing. Look throughout the Bible. Look at all the different people that God have used. God has used liars. He's used drunks. He's used murderers. He's used adulterers. He's used all these different type of people. But there's one group of people he cannot, will not use, and those type of people are what? Pride. God says, no, I will not and cannot use that pride. Because when you have a pride, you want to do it your way. You don't want to do it God's way. God says, I don't fight with that. Turn, if you will, please, to uh, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Let's just talk about this idea of pride here for a little bit. James 4, please. As you're going to James 4, there's a great little proverb that I like. It's Proverbs 29:23. Proverbs 29:23. it says, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. It's amazing what happens is when you try to do something prideful, a lot of times you just end up looking like a fool. And God says, I use those instances to try to humble you, to teach you to not be that way again in any way whatsoever. And we've all had instances in our life, we've all had examples in our life where we try to be prideful. And what happens is we're the one that ends up looking like a fool. Now, here as you go into James chapter 4, let's just build on this a little bit here. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, But God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God says, humble yourself in me. Realize it's all about me. It has nothing to do with you. 
It's all about me. Now, most of the time what we see in the body of Christ when it comes to pride, is it comes in different areas, I should say. The first area of pride that you normally see in the body of Christ is the classic example of, I don't have a problem. You know, you sit down, you talk to them, and their life is falling apart, and it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. They don't personally have a problem. It's not that they drink too much. It's not that they're addicted to this or that. It's not that they have a temper. It's not that they're not putting enough effort into the marriage. It's a pride of, I'm not the one that's causing all these problems. Oh, you've got to humble yourself. Fess up to what you've done wrong and realize that sometimes it falls on your shoulders. There's that pride of that. There's also the pride of spiritually, I'm doing fine. I mean, yeah, maybe I don't read as much as I should. Maybe I don't pray as much as I should. Maybe I don't serve as much as I should. But I'm doing really okay spiritually. Don't worry about me, Pastor. There's that pride of everything's okay. See, now we don't struggle with the pride of I'm equal to Jesus. We struggle with these little things. Or maybe we struggle with the pride of I'm the only one that can serve in this ministry. No one else can serve as good as I do. I am the one that the Lord needs in that area. As we've said out here numerous times, God needs nobody. Everybody is irreplaceable. Now, there may be certain people that are very integral to certain pieces, but everybody is replaceable because the Holy Spirit that leads one is the same Holy Spirit that will lead another. So we have to make sure that those areas of pride don't come in. That area of pride of I'm doing fine spiritually when I'm not. That area of pride of um, you know I'm not the one that doesn't have an issue. I'm not the one that doesn't have a problem. And that area of pride of, I am so important to the body of Christ. See, John had none of those things. And that's why God blessed him. And that's why John could handle that fruitful of a ministry. Because if he tried to think it was about him, oh my, that would not work in any way whatsoever. His job was to prepare people to meet Jesus. His job was to preach repentance and judgment. And that's exactly what he did. And therefore, God used him. Now, what was his actual message here? Look what he says in verse 16. Three types of baptism. I indeed baptize you with water. And he also says, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and I'll baptize you with fire. Three different things there. Now, the first one, water. This is the one we're most familiar with. It's the one we talk about the most. Like we mentioned earlier, we have a water baptism service coming up here at the end of August. We usually try to do a couple of these a year. We think it's a great step in your Christian walk and your relationship with the Lord. What is it? Baptism of water, and this is a little phrase we always use, it's the outward sign of an inward change. You've been changed by Christ on the inside, so therefore water baptism is a way for you to show the world I'm making a public stance of my walk and my relationship with Christ. And it's very symbolic. The water is a picture of Christ cleansing you from your sins. Going down into the water shows going down to the grave, dying to yourself. Coming up out of the water shows being born again, rebirth. And then Pastor Rich always likes to say, you look like a drowned rat. It teaches you humbleness. So it's this great picture here of your relationship with Christ. And that's what water baptism is. Now, I just want to stress this. Water baptism is not salvation. Jesus is salvation. Water baptism is just a great picture to identify yourself with Christ and to show the world I'm making a public stand here to show the world who I am in Christ. And if that's something that interests you, let us know. We'd love to have you partake of the water baptism coming up. So that's the one we're familiar with the most. Now, the next one here, this idea of baptize you with the Holy Spirit... This is where it gets a little interesting. Now, depending on what denomination you were raised in, or depending if you were raised in church at all, this idea of baptized with the Holy Spirit may not be something you're really familiar with. I know it wasn't something I was real familiar with. Uh, the church I came out of as a child didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit much or talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit much. So it was something I really learned when I started coming out here to harvest. And it's, it's a fascinating thing. Turn, if you will, real quick to uh, John 14. Let's just talk about this for a little bit. John 14, please. John 14. So we've talked about baptism with water. Now it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John 14, let's go ahead and start here in verse 16. John 14, verse 16 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you 
and will be in you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit dwells with us, and once you're born again and saved, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Now, the idea of the Holy Spirit dwelling with you, God is always with you. Now, that's very encouraging and very scary at the same time. Because when I'm going through the storms of life, I am so thankful that God is always with me. When I'm being a real horrible, sinful person, I hate the fact that God is always with me and sees everything I do. It's very encouraging, but it's very convicting at the same time that God is always with us. Now, when you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit now lives in you. That is an absolutely amazing thing. And I don't care how long you have been saved, and I don't care how many times you've heard this point, never let that point just become commonplace to you. God lives in you. What an amazing thing that is. If you jump back to the Old Testament, this idea of God living in you, it's crazy. One day a year, they got a chance to go into the presence of God. And that was only one person on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We have God living inside of us every day now. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit chooses to come live inside of you. The Bible says that your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. That this is a way that God seals you. It's a way that God says, this is mine, ownership. I have now claimed you. I know when we just got a dog a few months ago, one of the first things you do is you get the dog collar and you get the dog tag and you stick it on that dog. This dog is now ours. The Holy Spirit is your dog collar that goes around with you everywhere you go. You are the Lord's. He has claimed you. And what an amazing thing that is, is to think that God chooses to live inside of you. Now, with that mindset, the Holy Spirit lives with you, the Holy Spirit lives in you. There's a whole other level to this. And if you're taking notes, just write these verses down. It's Luke 24, 49. Luke 24, 49. And the other one is Acts 1, verse 8. Acts 1, verse 8. That's where it says the Holy Spirit is upon you. Now that is what we're talking about here at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's with you, the Holy Spirit's in you. Holy Spirit's always with you because God's with you. The Holy Spirit's in you once you get saved and accept Christ as your Savior. Now there's a whole other level of the Holy Spirit being upon you. This means to be completely covered in what the Holy Spirit wants you to do for your life. A great example of this is found in Psalm 133. In Psalm 133, what happens is when the uh, Old Testament, when the high priests were becoming high priests, they were anointed with oil. Always represents the Holy Spirit. And they were then anointed on their head with oil. Now, this wasn't just a little dab of oil. The Bible says this oil dripped down off Aaron's beard, his hair, and it dripped down off his clothes. He wasn't just anointed with oil. He was covered with oil. That's an example of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is, is you are covered in the Holy Spirit, empowered by him. It's no longer James. It's the Holy Spirit in James, and, and I willfully give my life completely over, saying, I, I want everything you have in store for me. You lead me. You guide me. You direct me. You empower me. It's all about you, and I just want to be a vessel that is used by the Lord in all ways and all things. And that's a conscious choice that you have to make. A lot of us accept the fact that God's always with us. A lot of us accept the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But to go to that next level of the Holy Spirit being upon us, that's a whole different thing. And that's one of the things that John was trying to teach here. And Luke chapter 3 is this idea of the Holy Spirit will do that. That's part of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, once I ascend into heaven, I will give you the helper. And that's the Holy Spirit. If you have more questions about this, because it's a big topic and it's a tough topic to cover in five minutes on a Sunday morning, I encourage you to go to the sound guys, talk to them. When we did our study in Acts a while ago, ask for the copy of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts 1 verse 8. We did a whole study on what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, look at the next one here. Baptize you with fire, verse 16. Some people think that goes with the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you remember in the book of Acts, when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, there was a representation of fire. Could be. But if you look at verse 17, I think this is what it's talking about. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Seems to be a third thing that we're talking about here. We know what we're talking about in verse 16, water. 
Jesus comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but then there's this baptism of fire. It's a judgment. When you see fire in the Bible, it usually talks about judgment, and that's what you see here in verse 17. Hopefully, you're the wheat. Born again and saved in Christ, you're brought into the barn. Picture of heaven, you're safe. The chaff, chaff is horrible. I can remember growing up as a kid, baling hay and baling straw, and you get that stuff down your back, your neck. It's horrible. All that loose stuff that is pointless is then brought into the barn, excuse me, it's brought together and burned. And that's kind of what the Lord is saying here, is this idea of you have the wheat brought into the barn, and then you have this chaff that's being destroyed. Now, what's that chaff represent? Well, maybe the chaff represents non-believers. Maybe the chaff represents things in your life that is destructive to you, and God says, I need to get all that junk out of your life and burn it up and keep you safe in the barn. But it's this idea of judgment here, and we forget this a lot. We forget that Jesus, part of his role in ministry, is, is a role in ministry of judgment. When we think of Christ, we think of either the babe in the manger... We think of the guy walking around with the sheep around his neck. We think of him on the cross. We don't think of him in judgment. That's one of his roles. We have this picture of Jesus, and we joke about this all the time. Nice beard, always smiling, looks good, clean shaven, etc. Like we were watching something on TV the other day, and it had a guy, and he had a nice trimmed beard. He had a little bit of a bushy hair, and he happened to have on a white robe. Had nothing to do with the Bible. My boys swore up and down it was Jesus, because that's just what Jesus looks like. He's just a good white American. That's Jesus. There's this idea of Christ that we have, and the truth of the matter is, yes, he's loving, yes, he's kind, yes, there's grace, yes, there's mercy, yes, he died on the cross for your sins. He's also going to judge the world, and that's part of that fire of judgment that we have a tendency sometimes not to really talk about as much as we should. And there is a fire of judgment that comes, especially if you don't know Christ. There's the fires of hell. Now, as we talked about last week, there may be the fire of hell, there's also the love, grace, and mercy of Christ that keeps us from that. And that's a beautiful thing. Remember, John's message was a message of preparation to meet Jesus. and was also a message of preaching, of repentance, and judgment. Now, it's not an easy message. Verse 18, with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. It is tough. It is tough to speak truth. And what you see here is he spoke truth. Now, what I notice a lot when it comes to the Bible is that you either have one or the other. Is there's this idea of Ephesians where it says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. That's a tough balance to find. I find a lot of Christians that speak a lot of truth. They speak the truth of hell. They speak the truth of sin. They speak the truth of judgment. They speak the truth of the end of the world. That is all true, but they don't speak the truth in love. Then I find other Christians that speak a lot of love. How much God loves you. You have a heaven waiting for you. You have a home waiting for you. And it's this beautiful picture of, of love. But there's not the truth of sin and hell. There's a very famous pastor that's on TV, and I happened to catch one of his messages one time, and he came right out and said that he will not speak about hell or sin. He said he won't. He said he would just speak about the love of God, and he won't worry about the hell and sin part. Well, if you don't have the part about hell and sin... What's the point of the love of God? Until you realize that there is a hell and that there's consequences for my actions of sin, you don't realize, well, why do I need the love of God? You have to have both. You have to have this balance. And that's what I like about John. When you jump back to John's first point here in verse 7, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's hellfire and brimstone. But yet, he also has grace and mercy of pointing people towards Christ. You need that balance of both. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're a truth person. And I've had people come up to me before, and they say, I just speak the truth, brother, which is really code for I'm really a jerk on a lot of the ways I say things. I'm glad you speak the truth. How about you put a little bit of love in that? And I've also met people that say, well, you know what? I'm not here to pick on anybody. I'm not here to put anybody down. I just want them to know that God loves them. Okay, I love that. 
but also mention the fact that there's sin that has to be dealt with. Jesus died on the cross, yes, because he loved us, but to save us from the punishment of sin. We have to speak the truth in love. And what you see here with John is he did both. Now here's the problem. If you speak the truth, there's going to be consequences for that. Verse 19, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he had shut John up in prison. Well, what happened was there's this guy ruling as a tetrarch, which means he rules a fourth of the kingdom. His name was Herod. He really liked his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so they worked out this deal where he basically stole his sister-in-law from his brother and had this relationship with. And it gets even more and worse when you read the whole story of it. Basically what happens is this guy was living outrightly, uprightly in sin. And he's a ruler, claimed to be a Jewish ruler. So what John did is John called him out on it. Now, what happened when John called him out? Herod said, I'm arresting you, and we know the story. Herod beheads him. There's a consequence to speaking truth. This is what I notice a lot of times as Christians. We are really thin-skinned. We don't mind speaking truth. So we take a swing at the world, and we speak truth. We call out sin. When the world swings back, we cower. We get scared. And then we claim we're being persecuted. The truth of the matter is, if you speak truth, the world is not going to like that. It's not. And if you say sin is sin, and you say right is right and wrong is wrong, the world is not going to hit their knees and say, wow, thank you for pointing out the flaws in our world system. They're not. They're going to hate you for speaking truth. And I see a lot of times with Christians, when they speak truth, and when the world then pushes back, we get all wimpy about it. We have to accept the fact that there's consequences for speaking truth. Turn, if you will, please, to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel 3. Ezekiel had one of the toughest ministries, I think, in the entire Bible. And what you see in Ezekiel chapter 3 is God is trying to prepare Ezekiel for his ministry. One of the things that we say out here at church a lot is ministry is not for the thin-skinned. Ministry is not for the faint-hearted. If you want to serve the Lord, you have to have thick skin and you have to be prepared to take a few blows every now and then. Ezekiel had to be prepared for this. So God prepares Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3. Listen to what he says here in Ezekiel 3, starting in verse 7. But the house of Israel will not listen to you. Because they will not listen to me. Now just stop there for a second. He comes right out to Ezekiel and says, Listen, they're not going to listen to you. If they don't listen to me, why are they going to listen to you? I used to think that every now and then. I always used to think, well, you know what? Obviously the Holy Spirit can't get a hold of this guy's heart, but just let me talk to him. Come on. If the world is rejecting Jesus, they're going to reject you. The Bible makes it clear. The way the world treated the prophets in Christ, they're going to treat you the same. We as Christians, why are we so shocked when the world doesn't like what we have to say? Why are we so shocked when other groups and other areas get to say whatever they want and the world doesn't say anything, but when we make a stand for truth, the world gets really ticked about us? Why are we surprised at these things? Why do we get our feathers ruffled about this type of stuff? This is the way it's going to be. God comes out and tells Ezekiel, this is how it is. Why is it this way? Look at verse 7. For the house of Israel are impudent and they're hard-hearted. They're basically thick-skulled. Verse 8, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their forehands, like adamant stone, harder than flint. I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are rebellious house. God says, Ezekiel, I've got to make you harder than them. Not hard-hearted to the point that you don't care, but hard-hearted that you can handle the abuse and the words and the actions that they're going to say. The truth of the matter is, people, we are not thick-skinned enough sometimes for ministry. We make a stand for truth at work or at home in our marriages or our lives. Everybody gets mad at us and then we just cower away. I can't believe they said that about me. I can't believe they don't like what I said. I can't go to work anymore. Why? 
Take a stand. When you take a stand, they're not going to like it. But you're standing for the Lord, not for man. Now, remember, take a stand in love. Speak the truth in love. Let the Spirit lead. I've seen a lot of Christians take a stand, not through the Spirit, not through love, and they wonder why it blows up. You should force it. If the Lord is telling you to take a stand, then you need to take a stand, and you need to realize the world is not going to jump up and down and say, Hallelujah, thank you for speaking truth. You need to be hard-headed, harder than them, that you're not going to bend and break on this. Now, just think about this for a second in your life. Is there a situation at home or at work or at school or within your group of friends or family where, just to be honest, you're not standing as strong as you should? And you know it. I'm not here to preach. I'm not here to convict. As soon as I bring it up, you probably say, Yeah, I should, I should probably say something about that. Or, you know what, I should probably put my foot down. Or, no, the next time this happens, I need to say something. Why don't we say it? Because we're concerned what people think about us. That's reason one. Reason two, I always hear this. Why? I don't want to have a fight. But sometimes you've got to fight. And it's not that you're trying to pick a fight, but you make a stand for what's right. You have to accept the fact that sometimes people aren't going to like it. But then don't get all worked up when they hate you. Don't get all worked up when they come against you. Don't get all worked up where they don't want to be around you. That is what's going to happen. And that's why God told Ezekiel, you've got to be harder than them. I was talking to somebody a while ago that was in ministry, and they were having a really tough time. And we went to this passage, and we said, listen, you've got to toughen up. You, you do. You've got to toughen up. If you want to get out there and serve the Lord, you've got to be tougher than what the people you're dealing with are because it gets hard sometimes. It gets really tough. Part of the reason why John spent so many years in the wilderness is God toughened him up for what he had in store for him. Now, John didn't know this. I mean, did, we really, did John really think, and I'm kind of speculating here, take it or leave it, when everything was clicking, at the highlight of John's ministry, thousands of people getting baptized, everybody coming to him, he was the vocal man of God. He was the fulfilled prophecy of Malachi. He is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He gets to baptize the Messiah. At the high point of his ministry, did John really think, hey, I'm going to get arrested here in a little bit and beheaded for calling out somebody for sleeping with his sister-in-law? I don't think so. But God hardened John in a good way to prepare him for what was in store. God does the same thing for you now. He prepares you for something bigger. He prepares you for something better. So let's see what that is. Now, let's finish this up. Verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now why did Jesus get baptized? We get baptized to show identification with Christ. People in John's time got baptized to show that they were repentant of their sins. The baptism didn't take away their sin, but it was identifying themselves with the coming Messiah. Jesus got baptized to identify himself with us. He said, I'm with you. I'm part of you. I am identifying myself with humble, sinful man. It goes back to what we talked about weeks ago. Why was Jesus born in a manger? To identify with our humble beginnings. Why is Jesus baptized? To identify himself with us. So he went through this process so that way he could be more relatable to us. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but there's two final points I want to say here. The first one, did you catch what Jesus was doing while he got baptized? He was praying. And that may be like a simple little point, but think about Christ. We know from the Bible that he prayed every morning. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he ate. He prayed before the cross. He prayed when he was on the cross. Jesus was always praying. Now, kind of one of these things that when you think about it, it makes your head spin a little bit. Jesus is God who's praying to God so he's really kind of praying to himself. So it's kind of like Jesus is talking to himself. Type. You know, you kind of keep thinking about this. And that's not really what it is. Jesus was always in communication with his Father because he submitted himself to his Father's will. 
And so by him constantly being in prayer, it wasn't that he was confused on what he should do and he tells Peter, hey, i got to go pray about this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's his way of constantly keeping the communication lines open with his father. Now, that's a lesson for us to learn because to be quite honest, we are not people of prayer like we should be. Now, this is what always happens. When I talk to someone and they're not doing well spiritually, I always ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? And my, their first response is, well, I still pray every day. Yeah, I think that's great. But this is what I notice. Our definition of prayer is really a whole lot different than what the Bible's definition of prayer is. Our definition of prayer is, I spend five seconds before I eat to really thank God for my family, my health, and my food. I, I spend a minute or two before I go to bed thanking the Lord for the day and asking for his hand to be upon me tomorrow. Or, let's just be really blunt and let's not hide from this, I spend a lot of time asking for things for God. Lord, please help me through this today. Please get me through. Lord, I just did. We do a lot of that type of praying. Now, is that wrong? No. I'm glad you're communicating with the Lord. But the type of prayer we're talking about here in the Bible is not so much asking, begging, pleading, or even thanking him. It's being in constant communication with God to say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? How can I serve you? How can I love you? What is your plan for me? Part of the reason why Jesus was always in prayer is he was always in line with God's will, and he always knew what to do then. See, I, I spend a lot of time in prayer, and part of the reason why I spend a lot of time in prayer is I don't know what's going to happen. Now, I can get up tomorrow morning and have a plan of, I'm going to call this person, contact this person, meet this person for lunch, and one phone call can change that whole day. I can have a plan of, you know what, when church is done, I'm going to do a few things, I'm going to head home and do this. Someone may come up to me after church and say, hey, pastor, this is going on. That changes everything. I don't know what's going to happen. So I need to be in constant communication with the Lord to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What type of nature do you want me to have? How do you want me to respond to things? I need to pray about stuff even before it happens. What I try to do before I even step foot out of the bed is, Lord, I give you the day. I don't know who's calling today. I don't know who's contacting today. I don't know what's happening today. Give me wisdom. Give me guidance. Help me to respond like you. I want to be a person of prayer. Psalmist writes in Psalm 55, if you're taking notes, just write this down. It's Psalm 55, verse 16. It says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Now, I don't think this is a literal, okay, I pray three times a day. I pray in the morning, I pray at noon, and I pray at night. This means that this person is in constant prayer throughout the day. One of the first verses we taught the boys was 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Never stop praying. If one of them gets hurt, sometimes we call all the other boys around and say, hey, let's lay hands on them and pray for them. We want them to be boys of prayer. And this idea that you're constantly in communication with the Lord on what do you want me to do? How can I serve you? How can I love you, Lord? Give me wisdom. And then when you're in constant communication with him, when those things of life pop up that you had no idea what was coming, you already prayed up for it. Even though you didn't know what was going to happen today, you've already given yourself over to the Lord to say, Lord, whatever comes this way today, give me strength, give me wisdom, help me to respond in grace and mercy. You're already prayed up and ready to go for that. That's part of the beauty of it. And that's why we're supposed to be people of prayer, because we don't even know what's coming. Sometimes tragic situations happen very unexpectedly. You don't have 10 minutes to say, you know what, let me go to my room by myself for a little bit, let me pray for a few minutes, and I'll come back and let you know what I think. You don't have that time. That's why we're prayed up beforehand so that way when those situations happen, immediately you already know what the Lord would want you to do in that situation because you've been in prayer, you've been in word, you've been trained by the Lord, and you can say this is how we're going to handle it because the Lord's already given wisdom. Jesus set the example for that. Now the last point about this, turn if you will with me to uh, Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 4. The other thing we see with this idea of being baptism is that idea of prayer, but also him identifying himself with us. Hebrews 4. It's amazing what Christ did 
to come down to our level. It's hard for us to imagine this because, well, it goes back to our earlier point of pride. We don't think we're all that bad. God took the form of man, sinful man. God was born in a manger. God was raised in this poor household for us. God got baptized by a sinful man to identify himself with us. That's an amazing thing. But you know what? If you have kids at home, you know as a parent, you'll do most anything to go down to your kids' level. One of my favorite things to do is to go up to the boys and say, hey, what do you guys want to play? And then they get to choose what they want to do, and then we go play that. Now, as an adult man, is it a lot of fun to do some of those things? No, not really. But the truth of the matter is some of them are a lot of fun. I just don't want to admit it because it makes me sound immature. But for a lot of them, no. But it's just fun to be around your kids. God humbled himself and came down and, if you will, played with his kids. And that's what he was willing to do. Look here at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a high priest that came down to your level to be with you, to have fellowship with you. Okay, go back to our point earlier on the message. God lives inside of you in the Holy Spirit. That's mind-blowing. Jesus went through all this so that way he could relate to you. So the next time you're having a woe is me moment, no one understands, no one gets, no one knows how difficult my life, my marriage, my kids, my job, why whatever is, Jesus says, I get it. See, it's amazing how, we talked about pride earlier, it's amazing how prideful we become where no one has suffered as much as I have. No one has ever had as hard as life as me. I've had people come into my office before and I, and I can see what they're trying to get. They'll come in and they'll kind of lay their life open and they'll say something to the effect of, I bet you never had anybody with as many problems as I have. And I usually say I have. I say me. Because we all have problems. I mean, we all do. Your problems may be, seem like the end of the world to you. You may be sitting near somebody right now that may say, I will trade you my cup of problems for your cup of problems. It's all in the eye of the beholder. So whatever you are struggling with, you have a high priest who cares and understands. That's part of the baptism of Jesus, that he identifies with us. He could have come down, he could have been born in the most amazing palace of all, and he could have sat on his throne from a baby to an adult, and then at age 33 said, it's now my time to suffer for the sins of the world, and had gone in his royal robe to a cross made of gold and suffered. He decided to live his life for 33 years like you and I live our lives, struggling, working. He sympathizes with us. He's gone through it. He understands. So the next time you're struggling with something and you say no one understands, the truth of the matter is no one may understand. Your spouse may not understand. Your friends may not understand. Your pastor may not understand. Jesus Christ understands. And he can sympathize with that and he can be there for you. So when you see the baptism of Jesus, you see one more step of Christ saying, I'm here to serve mankind and die for their sins. What a beautiful picture that is. Let's go ahead and finish this up. Mara, if you can come forward here for the final song. Put this all together here. We have John finalizing his ministry. His ministry was a ministry of preaching and preparation, preparing people to meet Christ and preaching judgment, but also preaching repentance. We can learn a lot from that. Let's point people towards Christ. Let's give them the honest truth, but let's also speak the truth in love. You also